While prepping for this week's podcast, I found myself in a creative funk. At the end of the last episode, I'd promised to outline an economic strategy that I believe will help Vermont's dying economy. But as I stared at pages and pages of notes and data about the Trump effect, about the phenomenon of economic nationalism, about Act 250, which is a 50-year-old controversial land use law in Vermont that has done more to kill business than any other regulation. As I looked at all these notes, I realized that I'm facing a critical existential question about the nature of this podcast. If you go to iTunes and look at the podcast section, you'll see that they are arranged under various genres. So there's one called News and Politics and another called Society and Culture. In the first, you'll find the likes of Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, and other sociopolitical commentators on the right and left. Because the objective of this podcast is to explain how right-of-center Vermonters engage with Deep Blue Vermont, you would think that writing what's left should belong under News and Politics. But I'm not so sure about that. I want this podcast to also be an avenue in which I can explore topics that really speak to me and in ways that I find interesting. Some of you may know that I'm the creator and host of an interview series called Dialogues with Meg Hansen, which airs on our local YCN network. And in these interviews, I have a chance to speak with Vermonters and understand how Montpelier's social and economic policies impact their lives. For example, we've explored the opioid crisis, the punishing costs of doing business in the state, the politics of abortion, crackdown on First Amendment and controversial Second Amendment policies that are being pushed by our legislature. The focus is on giving voice to Vermonters who don't have a platform. It's about illustrating their stories and it's about facts. There isn't a lot of room to editorialize and therefore this podcast is a way to give me some elbow room to delve deeper into issues that really interest me. But I find pure political talk and just numbers very dry and very boring. And so I fell into a creative funk as I was trying to prepare for this podcast. That's when I resorted to something called the kitchen sink strategy. Have you ever heard of it? It is an ingenious technique to tap into your right brain and get your creative juices flowing and get out of a writer's block or if you're feeling uninspired and stuck. It's a really great way to get out of that. Think of a kitchen sink, you know, filled with pots and pans. And if you have kids, you know, their toys get in there. If you have a cat, I'm sure your cat can get in there. You know, all kinds of really diverse things put together. So that's the idea that you're trying to create by jolting your brain and exposing it to lots of diverse sources of information. I began by looking into the controversy that was created last week when Tucker Carlson allegedly praised Elizabeth Warren's new economic plan. And no, there's no truth in that. He hasn't endorsed or praised it, but He did point out a couple of points from her plan and described them as, quote, Trump at his best. So Warren is trying to emulate Trump, and I found that interesting. So I read her plan, which is called Economic Patriotism, 
and then I looked into what economic patriotism is. She's just sort of co-opting that name and, and putting a sort of a left-wing spin on that, but that's, that's a, for a different day. And then I looked into what is economic nationalism, and I found a couple of interviews with Steve Bannon, who I'd never heard speak before, and sort of very hesitantly, I said, all right, let's give this guy a chance. So I listened to three of his speeches and interviews at very hostile locations. One was by The Economist. The other was Financial Times. And then the third one was at the Oxford Students Union. Then I read a little bit of The 100-Year Marathon, which is a really fantastic book that I recommend. It's by Michael Pillsbury. Um, and the subtitle is China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower. After that, I read three reviews of a recent Bollywood movie that's just come out. It's called Bharat, which means India. And it's the official remake of a Korean movie called Ode to My Father. And um, both these movies are about a young man and they sort of trace his, it's sort of coming of age story all the way to his old age. And the backdrop is, well, it, in the Korean movie, it's Korea. In the Indian movie, it's India. And it's sort of a coming of age story of the nation as well. So I just, I read the reviews. I'm not gonna watch that movie. <laughs> suffice to say but you know it was interesting to learn about this sort of parallel and then I got into film so then I moved to Ridley Scott and I listened to a whole bunch of his interviews because I know his life story I know he's a very very fascinating character really um, he started off as an art student then he became an art director a production designer at BBC then he started making commercials and then music videos and at the age of 40 he made his first movie now if you think about kitchen sink i mean his filmography really embodies that think about it from alien to blade runner gi jane gladiator prometheus the martian black hawk down wow i mean that's a kitchen sink right there so i really wanted to understand his process and he's very very articulate very interesting so i listened to a lot of his interviews and then i watched strangers on a train 1951 classic by Alfred Hitchcock. And then I rewatched LA Confidential, which was released in 1997, but it's set in the 1950s. And then, as all these various ideas swirled in my head, I had that epiphany doubles. This is what really ties together not only all the things that I delved into, and I'll get into that in a little bit, but it really speaks to what I want to talk about regarding economics, the U.S. versus China, the globally or transnationally oriented elites versus the rest of the U.S. population whose personal and professional lives are geographically defined. So thanks to the kitchen sink strategy, I have our theme for this week, the double motif, and let's see how ideas from culture help explain the politics of today. The decision to place the intro music seven minutes into this episode was directly inspired by Bollywood, where it's not unusual for movies to feature the opening credits 10 minutes or sometimes even 15 minutes into the movie. Okay, let's get to the double motif. In film, this involves a comparison or contrast between two characters. 
Sometimes it's a mirror image, as in the Indian and Korean movies I referenced earlier. And sometimes it's between two contrasting images, as in Hitchcock's film and L.A. Confidential. Strangers on a Train begins with a chance encounter on a train between two characters, Guy Haynes, a famous tennis player, and Bruno Anthony, a gay, wealthy dandy with psychopathic tendencies. As they're talking, Bruno reveals a master plan. He wants Guy to murder his father for him, and in turn, he's willing to kill Guy's unfaithful wife. This way, they'd each be killing strangers, and so no motive could be assigned to the murders. Double murders, crisscross, as Bruno says. In L.A. Confidential, Wendell Bud White and Edmund Ed Exley are two cops in L.A. Bud is a muscle man, very violent, but all heart, and Ed is all intellect, an intelligent and calculating political animal, all head and no heart. So in the movie, they have to evolve. Bud embraces his intelligence, and Ed grows a heart, and they come together to save the day. But this isn't a grown-up version of The Lion and the Scarecrow, where one needs a heart and the other a brain. Bud White and Ed Exley are the same person, as are Guy Haynes and Bruno Anthony. And this is why, when we're talking about contrasting images, in terms of doubles, that's what's so fascinating about it. The representation of one complex person as two opposing characters is a comment on identity and how one's identity is allowed to form in and by society. It is a comment on how one's familial and social environment determines which personality attributes are lauded and encouraged while which ones are condemned. So if you think about it, what aspect of your person have you allowed yourself to manifest, to show the world? And which parts of yourself are suppressed into your shadow self, your alter ego, your double? Speaking of divides, we all know that we live in a hyper-divided nation. Now on the surface, it might seem like the main divide is between the political right and left. But there is a far more profound and more consequential schism in the American identity today. This divide in the American national consciousness exists between the globally or transnationally oriented elites, and I believe this comprises the top 20% of U.S. earners, and the remaining 80% of the population. The first group, the elites, are comprised of corporate executives, bureaucrats, state administrators, media conglomerates, technocrats, and upper-class professionals for whom the world is technologically and economically integrated and they see themselves as cosmopolitan citizens of the world with a tenuous allegiance to the U.S. nation-state. Members of this elite class belong to both the Democratic and Republican parties. It is really a bipartisan elite. In right-of-center publications, there is much ado about how the left wants open borders and whether immigration for the left, whether it's legal or especially illegal, is all good all the time. However, in these same publications, one dare not question free market orthodoxy. When it comes to free trade, it's all good all the time. Well, actually, trade and labor or immigration are two sides of the same coin. Unfettered free 
but unfair trade hurts lower-class Americans and the U.S. economy in the same way that open borders and illegal immigration does. Illegal immigration floods the labor pool with cheap, unskilled labor, which hurts the job prospects of lower-income U.S. citizens, especially African Americans and Hispanics. Similarly, a policy of systematic deindustrialization off the U.S. economy has taken jobs away from working-class Americans and given it away to countries like China. Following China's entry into the World Trade Organization in 2001, a Chinese middle class equal to the size of the entire U.S. population emerged. Now look at this figure. Between 2001 and 2017, the United States lost 3.4 million jobs, three quarters of which were in the manufacturing sector. And Vermont was one of the top 10 states that were hardest hit because of this. Today, the traditional U.S. middle class no longer forms a stable class entity. It has been disappearing as millions of Americans experience steady socioeconomic decline. Alyssa Quart, who authored a book called Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, this book was published last year, she reports that middle-class life today has become 30% more expensive than it was just 20 years ago. As millions of Americans find themselves spiraling into socioeconomic decline, the transnational elites are moving past the regressive 20th century passe idea of the nation state. I mean, who wants to belong to just one particular geopolitical entity when you can belong to the whole world? No wonder that AOC recently declared that illegal immigrants are, quote, more American than American citizens themselves. So now you understand the ideology behind this bizarre but all too common rhetoric. Now you also understand why it was more important for Vermont legislators to change the name of Columbus Day than to do anything about the state's dying economy. Why do I use the adjective dying? For one, Vermont ranks 49th in the entire nation just above Montana, 49th for private sector total compensation, which includes wages and benefits. For the first time in the history of our state, we have a negative net worth of $200 million. And to rub salt, a lot of it, on that wound, we have a $2.3 billion liability. Billion with a B. $2.3 billion liability in retiree healthcare benefits for teachers and employees. Where, oh where, is that money going to come from? For more on these depressing but very illuminating statistics, check out an article titled Vermont is in Trouble. This is written by Eric Lamontagne, the executive director of Campaign for Vermont a nonprofit organization that builds itself as nonpartisan. The real divide, that of economy, and how the elites have restructured the American economy in their favor and deliberately against that of the rest. This is really, the really the key to not only solving Vermont's problems, but that of 
all Americans whose livelihoods and access to opportunities for prosperity are dependent on the U.S. nation-state. A wise man once said that politics lies downstream of culture. So next week, when we continue the conversation by discussing Trump and his agenda of economic nationalism or economic patriotism, you know that the motif of the double won't be far behind. Join us then. Mm-hmm.